What is up, everybody? Good to be back. I uh, have heard the rumblings. Um, everyone's been saying, Cole, you look so tan. How did you get so tan? And the reason is because for the last 11 days prior to this, I was in Southeast Asia. I got to spend some time in Thailand and in Taiwan with some of our, yeah, wow, got some claps, that's nice, um, with some of our missionary friends. So I just wanted to dispel any concerns that you guys might have that I go to like a tanning bed or something, because we wouldn't want anybody thinking that I do that. That one didn't land as well. Anyways. <laughs> My name's Cole. If we haven't met before, I know we have a lot of new people here tonight, so I'm pumped to get to be up here with you guys, continuing on in our series saying that, God, we want your will to be done in our lives. But as we've found until this point, that invitation to say, God, I want your will to be done in my life is kind of a scary one. Because to say, God, I want your will to be done in my life is an invitation for your life to change dramatically. You're inviting into your life something that is so different and countercultural than what we grew up hearing, than what the world preaches to us, the gospel that the world preaches to us. And what we're going to be talking about tonight is another one of those things, and I think maybe one of the more challenging things in our Christian life. What we're talking about tonight is suffering. Now, I know that there's probably some people in this room who are going through some really, really difficult sufferings right now. And there are also probably people in this room who are having one of the greatest seasons of their lives, and they've never been more joyful than they are right now. But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, one thing is certain, and that is that every single one of us will experience suffering, especially if you are a Christian. Because to say, God, I want your will to be done in my life is an invitation to suffer. Because suffering is one of those things that is promised to every single believer, right? In Luke 9.23, it says, then he, Jesus, said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So if anyone wants to follow after Jesus, you too are going to have to pick up your cross, that pinnacle of suffering moment, and follow him. And then also in John 15, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So when we face suffering, in our Christian life, it shouldn't be something that's surprising. And part of the reason that it shouldn't be something that's surprising is because Jesus himself is described as a man of sorrows. And we see that throughout his life, right? At the beginning of Jesus' life, as King Herod is trying to kill the Messiah that threatens his power, 
King Herod goes and he kills all the children that are two years old or younger. All the young boys in Jesus' area in an attempt to kill Jesus. In Matthew 2, it talks about that. We also find that Jesus likely lost his earthly father, Joseph, at a relatively young age because we hear about Joseph when Jesus is 12 years old, and then we never hear about him again in his adult life. So Jesus likely lost his earthly father to something that cost him his life. We also have uh, Jesus's death of his cousin and friend, John the Baptist, when John the Baptist was beheaded. In Matthew 14, Jesus finds out about that. We also have the death of his friend, Lazarus, where Jesus weeps, the shortest, two, the shortest verse in the Bible. We have in Mark 6, Jesus faces rejection from his hometown as he goes to preach the good news of the gospel, and they basically all go, who does this man think that he is? And Jesus was rejected by those that he grew up with. We have rejection by God's chosen people. In Luke 19, Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he weeps over them because they do not believe. And he says, how I wish that I could gather you like a chicken gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And he weeps over them. And obviously, we have that pinnacle moment of suffering in the crucifixion and everything that came with that. The sweating of blood, the crying out to his father. So Jesus is this man of sorrows. And unless or so that we don't fall into the trap of the prosperity gospel, we see that suffering is something that continues on throughout the rest of the New Testament with both the apostles and just the regular faithful people who commit their lives to Jesus. Both specific suffering for being Christians and general suffering that all people go through. Suffering in the Christian life is a promise and all varieties of suffering. So it shouldn't be surprising when we suffer, which means that the question when we're talking about this is not, will I suffer? Because we know that we will as Christians, even if that's hard for us to comprehend in a society and culture that's so uh, isolating of suffering, where we want to just get out of it. We know that it will come. So the question isn't, will I suffer? The question is, is following Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus worth the suffering that's promised in the Bible? Because none of us escape it because we are following the man of sorrows. So the question of is following Jesus worth it, that's the real question that our suffering is going to ask or our sinful flesh is going to ask in the depth of suffering, right? Because academically right now, especially if you're not going through something that's really hard and heavy, you're probably going to be like, yeah, totally. But when you're in it, and you have so many things in the world that are trying to call you away from Jesus to say that they provide more comfort and more promise for you than Jesus does, that's when we need to know the answer to that question. Is following Jesus worth it? And tonight we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 through 11, as Paul is opening up 
another one of his letters to, Corinthi- or to the Corinthian church, obviously. Anders preached out of 1 Corinthians last week, so you guys have a little bit of a primer for that, but we're going to be in the second one. Um, and we're going to see a few things that God is doing through the suffering of his people. To help us answer that question, is following Jesus worth it? So, verse 3, you guys aren't there yet, it's going to be up on the screen. Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So for this first point, we're going to stop at that verse because I want us to hone in on that. So Paul opens up in a pretty traditional way. And he says that God is the Father of mercies, which every Christian would know that, right? Because that's like the foundational truth of the gospel is that we were a sinful people deserving of God's wrath, deserving of hell, and Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we who believe in him could be forgiven and made right with God. If you are a Christian, you know that God is the father of mercies, and that is an unfathomably beautiful truth that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But Paul then says that God is the God of all comfort. And so we should ask ourselves, why does Paul add that with the Father of mercies line? After talking about the grace of the Lord, for him to say that God is the God of all comfort, well, because the first thing, God being the Father of mercies, that is realized the moment that we become Christians. The moment that you receive the gospel for the first time, you know that God is the father of mercies. But that second thing, to say that God is the God of all comfort, that's only realized when you need it. That's only truly realized when you need it. When you actually need comfort. Nobody knows God as the God of comfort unless they themselves have needed to be comforted. So Paul is saying that God is the God of all comfort because Paul has experienced the need of comfort in all areas. In all areas of life. And so knowing God as the God of all comfort does something unique in the relationship of the Christian with their God. I have a quote um, from this woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. I think I pronounced her last name wrong. I don't really know. Um, You guys can look it up. She has this book called Confronting Christianity, and she wrote a chapter on suffering. I meant to send the quote in here, but I forgot, so I'm going to read it slowly. So here's what Rebecca says. In the early Genesis narrative, Adam and Eve knew God as creator and Lord perhaps even as friend. But Christians know Jesus far more intimately as savior, lover, husband, head, brother, fellow sufferer, and their resurrection and their life. The first humans could not have dreamed of this earth-shattering intimacy with God. The first humans couldn't have dreamed of that. 
And so the first thing that God is doing through the suffering of his people is that God is showing the church who he is in a way that we can only know through suffering, namely that God is our great comforter. Do you know what it means that God is our great comforter? So I mentioned that I was in Thailand this past week. Our first couple days we went to Taiwan um, because we were visiting some of the missionaries who were over there. And while we were there, they showed us around some of the temples that the Taiwanese people will go and worship their gods at, right? Which is, is honestly a pretty crazy thing for us to imagine here because we just don't, at least not in Iowa, have things like that around frequently, but they're everywhere there, right? So they would go and they'd worship Buddha, Confucius, their local gods. So I have a picture. Um, So this was in one of the temples. You walk into this room, and what you see here are these little lights, these little like pictures of light, whatever. So these are thousands of people, Taiwanese people, who have paid to have their name written on these little blocks of light so that people will pray for them for whatever their thing is that they're going through. And here's what's fascinating about that, is that as you are going to worship this temple God, you need to say your name, you need to say where you live, who you are, what you do, and what you're going through, because if you don't do that, then the gods won't know where to find you, and they won't know what to do for you. So I'm thinking about this as we're there, and I'm contrasting this with the God of the Bible, and this was one of the verses that came to mind. Isaiah 49, verse 14 through 16, says this. Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So whereas every single other God in the world that promises you comfort, whether that's a God that you go and worship in a temple, or it's a God that you go and worship on your phone, or a God that you go and worship at the bars, or a God that you go and worship in another person, whatever that thing is, they don't know you. But God does know you. He has written your name on the palms of his hands. Even the most intimate relationship that we can imagine, a mother with her child, God says, I care about you even more than that. That God is our great comforter means that when you are in the depths of the valley, seemingly all alone, God is there with you, not as some passive bystander who happens to be there because he's omnipresent and so he's everywhere, but as a God who has seen every suffering moment that has ever happened in the history of the earth and knows the depths of your heartache. 
because he knows you, because he cares about you. For God to be the God of all comfort means that he is the fountain from which all comfort comes. Isn't that an interesting thought? That if God is the God of all comfort, then that means that every comfort we have ever experienced in this life is just a reflection of the comfort that we can experience that's available to us in Christ. And that's what's so amazing to me in John chapter 11, when Lazarus, Jesus' friend that we talked a little bit about earlier, dies, and Jesus knows that he is going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he still weeps harder than anybody else who's there. How sympathetic and grieved he was at the effects of sin and brokenness on the people that he loves. God is entirely in control of every single second of our suffering. He is totally sovereign. And simultaneously, he is able to sympathize, sympathize with us infinitely deeper than we could ever imagine. In suffering, God reveals the beauty of his comfort to his people. He shows us that he is the God of comfort. But of course, that's not all that God is doing, so let's continue on. Verse 4, Paul, Paul continues. He says, He, God, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. So Paul is saying that there's an additional reason and purpose in God's comforting of his suffering children. And that reason and that purpose is that they might be able to comfort others who are also going through suffering. And in verse 5, it's amazing that those sufferings that we said are that every Christian, everyone who's following Jesus experiences, how those overflow to us, that the comfort that Jesus experienced also overflows to us. The suffering and the comfort always come together in Christ. So part of the reason that Christ is the fountain of comfort that we just talked about is because he has experienced the most suffering of anybody in the history of the world, which means that he simultaneously has experienced the most comfort in that suffering of anybody in the world. No one that you know has experienced more suffering than Jesus, and no one that you know has experienced more comfort in the Lord than Jesus. And as God's people, those sufferings overflow while the comfort overflows at the exact same time because Jesus cares too much for his bride, the church, than to leave them, to leave us, without physical manifestations of his co-suffering with us. Do you get that? 
Jesus loves you and me too much to leave us feeling alone in our suffering. And he knows that those physical manifestations, they help us to see that greater reality of the comfort that's found in Jesus. The suffering of God's people show God's people that he is right there for them. And that's the second thing that God's doing through the suffering of his people is God is caring for the church. God is caring for you and me. And this would seem like the most backwards thing in the world, right? Because if it's God's intention, and it is, that he would build the church and save souls around the world, that the gospel would go to every corner of the earth, and that people who have never heard the gospel before would hear it and find eternal life in Christ. If that is God's intention, then wouldn't it make sense that God would protect his people from all that suffering? To show to the rest of the world that he is stronger than the powers of the world? And that those who are Christians, those of us who have been saved by Jesus, that we would be protected by our God? Those were the views of the gods in the ancient world. So it's the classic question of how can a good God allow his people to suffer? We get it somewhat logically if he would allow other people to suffer. But his people, his children, whom he loves, why would he do that? Look at verse 6. Paul says a few things that God's doing here. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. So Paul's saying our affliction is for your comfort and salvation. Through the affliction of Paul, the Corinthians would receive comfort and they would be sanctified to be delivered to the end where they will be in heaven where there's no more tears and no more sorrow. Through their suffering, the church was blessed. And you know that it's impossible it's, it's so easy here where we live to not take our faith seriously because we just become so intoxicated with luxury and isolation from comfort. But it's impossible to not take your faith seriously in the face of suffering. Certainly not in the face of other people's suffering as they're following the Lord. And watching fellow believers suffer leads to the sobering of the church as they grow in Christian maturity. So Paul says, our affliction, your comfort and salvation or sanctification. Paul also says then, our comfort leads to your comfort. And we know that, right? If any of you have ever gone through anything remotely difficult, you can tell who, when you're talking to them, has also been through something difficult, right? So back in December, my wife, Marissa, her grandfather passed away, so we went to his funeral. And I'm always amazed by how you can tell this truth, right? The people who haven't gone through something really, really difficult and the people who have gone through something really, really difficult because the people who haven't gone through something, who haven't really had a close experience with death, seem to be the most likely people to just give those empty platitudes. 
You know the ones? He's not suffering anymore. It's okay. The things that don't actually speak to the heart of the sufferer. But not for God's church. For God's church, he says, you're finding comfort in the Lord through suffering. That's what leads to comfort for other believers. To be a people who can comfort in any kind of affliction, we will certainly be people who have faced any kind of affliction so that we can walk with those who go through the same things and be that reflection of Jesus to them. And then Paul says, continuing on in verse 6, that if you are comforted, then you will have endurance. And here's what's interesting about that. As Christians are comforted, they're given endurance because as Christians are comforted, one, it allows them to catch their breath for a moment and regain their strength to keep going in their Christian walk. That's definitely part of it. But the other part of it is that as we are comforted in suffering, that drives our worship of Jesus even deeper. Because as you get to know Jesus more and the reality of who he is and what that means for us, that is the motivation for everything that we do in our Christian life. For every single step. To know further the one that you are following and the one who cared enough about us to die for us. To better answer that question, is following him worth it? To have a better vision of Jesus just leads our hearts in worship. And this gives us endurance as we more fully fall in love with the God that we have been called out from death to life to follow. So that it would seem backward for God to lead his church through suffering for their own sake is only true if God isn't doing anything through their suffering. But we see in verse 7 that that is never the case. Because verse 7 tells us that with suffering comes the promise of comfort every single time. And with the promise of comfort comes every other blessing that God gives his people in their distress to know him more and to see him more clearly. Christians are never people who suffer without purpose, but rather people who suffer under the sovereign control of their heavenly father who walks with them every single step of the way. That is our reality. But we're not done in seeing what God's doing through suffering, so let's continue on. Verse 8 through 11. Paul says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We've put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then the many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. So just in case anybody thinks that Paul is like the Pharisees who infamously in the Bible would load 
pressures and rules and laws and commands on people that they themselves were not carrying, Paul is saying things to people that he himself has had to experience. Paul and his friends suffered. And they're not entirely sure. Commentators aren't entirely sure what that means. So I looked it up a little bit to kind of try and figure it out. Here's a few possible suggestions. One, so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how when he went to Ephesus, he had to fight wild beasts on his ministry. So that's something. He had to fight animals to do things. That could be part of what this suffering was. Um, it could be in later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's going to talk about how he was whipped 39 times as punishment for gospel proclamation. Whipped almost to the point of death for telling people about Jesus or some recurring physical malady that he had because he talks about it. His thorn in the flesh could be that. But whatever it is, Paul is wanting them and us to know that he's not speaking from a place of comfort, comfort defined as being isolated from suffering. He's speaking from a place of having gone through something that was so bad that it made him wish that he was dead. Which, if you read through the Bible, is a surprisingly common theme for God's people to feel. Moses talks about that in the Old Testament. Elijah talks about that in the Old Testament. Paul talks about it here. I was just reading in Mark this morning, Jesus being distressed to the point of death. Have any of you guys felt that way before? Having been so grieved with whatever your suffering is that you wish that you were dead? Or that you thought to yourself, it would be easier to be dead and be with Jesus than to be going through what I'm going through right now. God intentionally put Paul and those with him in a situation beyond their strength to feel those feelings for what purpose? Well, verse 9 Paul says, so that they would not hope in themselves, but in Christ. In Christ who what? In Christ who raises the dead. Which means that even if their fear happened, even if they died, even if our worst case scenarios in our suffering, if they would happen, God is still in control. God is still the deliverer who delivers us over to life. God was freeing Paul and the rest of them from themselves and putting their trust where it belongs. And that's the third thing that God is doing in the suffering of his people is God is putting the faith of the church where it belongs. So the question we need to ask is, isn't there a better way for God to do that? <laughs> than for me to feel that way. So I remember, you know, I think a lot of our Christian life is kind of a process of us looking back and realizing how dumb we were. Like, if you know, you know. So this was one of those moments for me. 
So a few years ago, I don't know what was happening. I uh, must have been going through something. I don't know. But I began to think that I could, in a clever way, pray against suffering in my life by praying this. God, teach me, grow me in the ways that I need to be grown, but could you do it through the experiences that I've already had? I was like, I don't want anything new. God, I want to grow in patience without actually being challenged to grow in patience. I want to grow my love for you, my delight in you, without actually ever going through anything that makes me see how good you are and my need for you. I was like, God, just show me yourself without making me go through anything new. But here's the problem with that, is that you and I are extremely stubborn people, right? And we oftentimes don't realize things unless we are forced to realize them. God does it this way because we are often a people who only learn to let go of our own control over situations when we are brought to the end of ourselves and realize that our control was a sham to begin with. That we had no control. Our plans end when we die. But God's purposes prevail through death. Every time. And we need to abandon all self-trust and fully trust in God. And look at the beauty, as Paul continues, that comes from that abandonment of self-trust. Verse 10, Paul is able to confidently say in the face of death that he trusts God to deliver them from that death into life. Imagine the next time you're feeling what we are talking about but you have this unshakable hope that God is with you and he has not abandoned you. That's the first thing. And the second thing is Paul is inviting other people to practice that dependence on the Lord through prayer with them. And that's the last thing we're going to focus in on here is that it's God's intention that his people wouldn't walk through their suffering alone. Christians are to be a body that knows the suffering of one another and pray about the sufferings of one another. And as we come together to pray for our suffering brothers and sisters, people see that and they give glory to God as they see how God delivers them. So God is made much of, souls are saved. You and I as Christians are encouraged in the Lord as we see God working in the lives of those who are suffering, which means that God is glorified as his suffering saints find community. And isn't that amazing? That God would make things work in such a way that his name is most glorified when you and I are in the depths of suffering and we find a friend. Kind of shakes up the whole are we just pawns thing. By God putting our faith where it belongs, we cease 
to be a people who are alone, fully dependent on ourselves. And we become a people who come hand in hand with our brothers and sisters in Christ in joyful dependence on the one who is sovereign over all and cares intimately for each and every single one of his children. So the question in the beginning was this. Is following Jesus worth all the suffering that following Jesus invites into our lives? Whether that's suffering of rejection because of our faith, whether that's physical suffering, emotional suffering, whatever it is, is following Jesus worth it if that is God's will for our lives? And here's what I think we see is that if through suffering we come to know the God of comfort who loves us so much to come and die on the cross and be resurrected and go through all that suffering willingly, you and I don't have a choice. He chose it. And for God to do that in the flesh so that we would have the promise of there being a day when there will be no more suffering for his people, when every tear will be wiped away, when all sickness and disease and pain and persecution is no more, when every knee has bowed to the Lord. For Jesus to do that, and if through my suffering I get to know that God more, And I'll follow that God anywhere, no matter the cost. That is some pretty good news. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, um, what a crazy thing to be talking about, because we will never do talking about suffering the justice um, that that topic deserves because it's so deep and real. But God, the beauty is that nobody knows that more than you. Lord, because you were a man of sorrows. Jesus, because you are well acquainted with grief. Because you know us in the depths of our suffering. So Jesus, we praise you that as Christians, we are the freest people in the world when it comes to suffering because we are able to feel the depth of pain deeper than any other religion allows its followers to feel. We're able to say this world is broken and I feel that pain while simultaneously being a people who are not without hope, but a people who have hope. Jesus, we praise you that that's true. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room who does not know that tonight, who does not know you, who doesn't know this God of comfort, Lord, we pray that they would. And Jesus, for any of us who are going through some really hard stuff, we pray that your word, that your reality would be of great comfort to us. Jesus, we love you and we need you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.